Hello, and welcome to Conversations Towards Reconciliation with Alderville First Nations Chief Tainar Simpson. I'm your host, Robert Washburn. This program is coming to you from the Williams Treaty Territory and Northumberland 89.7 FM. For the next 30 minutes, we will bring you important stories and issues facing Indigenous and non-Indigenous people living here in Northumberland County and across the country. It is your chance to become better informed, more engaged, and empowered as we all move together on the path to reconciliation. So join us for the next step on this journey. It is always great to talk to Tanner Simpson, Chief of the Alderville First Nations. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well, Robert. I want to begin our conversation today by talking about Indigenous representation in the entertainment industry. There are a number of stories in the news in these past few weeks that I think are rather important. First of all, Marvel Studios released its latest offering earlier this month on Disney+. The series is called Echo. Now, the lead character is an Indigenous Latin American played by Trace Maya Lopez. Now, Marvel's getting praise for some corners, saying it is good to see an Indigenous superhero being portrayed. What is your reaction? Um, I think that's a really good development in the entertainment industry, um, especially where Marvel's concerned. Um, they haven't had too many Indigenous characters, and the ones that they did were uh, um, they were overly stereotyped, uh, and, and they didn't normally last very long. So this one's um, interesting because it's uh, directed by uh, an Indigenous uh, director, and it stars Indigenous people. So I think that's important that uh, not only is it our voice, uh, it's um, uh, it's our people portraying these uh, these characters. So um, I'm not too sure about what the uh, context of the show is about. I know it's about uh, uh, someone who's basically Kingpin's uh, adopted daughter. So it seems exciting. It's already intertwined in the Marvel Universe, but it sounds like you don't need to know everything that happened in the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe up to this point. As you mentioned, there are a number of key roles in this production that are being filled by Indigenous people. Now, the show is being directed by a Navajo filmmaker, Sydney Freeland, and an Aboriginal Australian filmmaker, Katrina McKenzie. It also features familiar actresses. Tentu Cardinal, I understand, is in it, who is known for her performances in films like Dances with Wolves and Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, she's from Cree and Métis. Graham Greene is also from the Six Nations Reserve in Ontario. He's playing a supporting role. Deviri Jacobs and Cheske Spencer, who are, are also involved. What message do you think this sends to young people having such a diverse group of Indigenous representation? Uh, I think it sends a good message uh, about our culture and where we stand in uh, the larger society of North America. Um, so having some of these uh, these uh, esteemed uh, actors, Tantu Cardinal and Graham Greene, it's um, it's going to be important that links the past. So some of the actors that were probably involved in the Hollywood of the past where we weren't properly represented, coming into uh, a dynamic where uh, we're hoping that you know we are properly represented. And given the um, the number of controls uh, that are in place by Indigenous people, I feel like it's going to be a pretty good uh, adaptation. I mean, it is a, a 
sci-fi adventure. So um, it's going to have some leeways in the, the storytelling. But overall, I'm very optimistic that uh, it's going to appeal to young people and they're going to see themselves in uh, reflected in a way that uh, is more culturally appropriate than it has been in the past. There was a quote by one of the actresses, uh, Devereux Jacobs, saying she hopes that this is just the beginning of Indigenous storytelling in the industry. She noted recently there is Rutherford Falls, Reservation Dogs, and Prey as examples. We have watched other times in the past when Indigenous storylines have emerged, uh, movies like Dances with Wolves or TV shows like North of 60. How do you think what is taking place now is different than previously? Uh, well, that's a good question. So I grew up in um, the Hollywood of uh, the 70s, 80s and, and 90s, I guess that far. Uh, this is where the studios uh, didn't have any Indigenous people involved. The director wasn't Indigenous. And quite often the main character would have been a non-Indigenous character that's been transported into an Indigenous world. If you want to think Dances with Wolves with Kevin Costner, you have Last of the Mohicans, uh, where it was uh, based on Indigenous culture. But the the story was an adoptive, uh, non-native person. Um, so I think that the issue is that uh, we've always been portrayed by non-Indigenous people who they think we are. And that creates a narrative that is more romanticized and doesn't reflect on reality. So in the past, when you would look at movies, you would maybe take some of the, the good representations and say, hey, this, this represents my culture, Dances with Wolves, but it really didn't. It was still that romanticized version that Hollywood was trying to create. And if you go back even further into the 50s and 60s, oftentimes Indigenous people weren't portrayed as uh, uh, the, the, the best of people. They weren't even portrayed by Indigenous actors themselves. Uh, they were just people in uh, red face, you could say. So what we're having now is a complete rebirth of our people telling our stories in our way with our actors. So it's really completely different from what's happening in the past. You mentioned earlier about the importance of people like Ten to Cardinal and also Graham Greene. How are these people influential to you or how you responded to these more seasoned actors back in the day who were coming out and, and starting to do these kinds of portrayals. Can you talk a bit about that experience that you had seeing these people on the screen? I think that when you're a young person, you're looking for uh, identity. You ask questions of who am I? Uh, what's my purpose in life? And then you, you would see, um, like if you were trying to latch on to your indigenous culture and for myself who wasn't uh, uh, raised on the reserve, I was raised in the cities. I didn't really have a lot of people to go to to talk about it. So I found uh, a lot of meaning in movies and and there were some good ones. Uh, uh, Little Big Man uh, comes to mind. Um, so you would take those and then you would see these actors. Uh, Chief Dan Dorge was in there. So at that time, there weren't too many um, Indigenous actors, you could count them on like two hands, how many Indigenous actors were in the industry. So it's nice to see that those uh, people that were representing Hollywood in the past are now here um, and representing a, in a new way. So uh, someone like Grand Green and Tantu Cardinal, who who were both in Dances with Wolves, um, uh, they're coming full circle now. And they've always been good spokespeople for, for our people. And uh, we never blame them for the roles that they were uh, given. Those were the only roles available to Indigenous actors at the time. And, and for the most part, they did a really honorable uh, job with those roles. But now the whole, everything's opened up to uh, to the new way. And, and I think it's a good way. 
In another story, the mobile game Contest of Champions has introduced an original First Nations character who is a 60s scoop survivor. Now, for those who are not familiar with the gaming world, Contest of Champions is a Marvel product. How do you tell the difference between appropriation of culture and not? Uh, I think that if you get to the definition of appropriation, it's when uh, someone from one group is taking aspects of another group uh, and making it their own and producing something based on it. So uh, if you get people say like they, they like um, indigenous uh, um, regalia and they'll make that their own and say, hey, look what I just made. Or they look at the art and say, I like this art, I'm going to make my own. And but it looks very similar to indigenous art, but they're not. Um, it, it goes to this uh, to gaming as well, too. So if you have a non-indigenous person saying this is what I think an indigenous warrior looks like and what I think they would do um and if you just create it based on that then that's appropriation but if you have uh, creators that are indigenous um you know and you have like artists that are indigenous uh that are designing these characters and you have say even an indigenous voice representing that person then that gets out of the realm of appropriation and and becomes more of a a, a real deal recently there was an announcement about an indigenous music office opened to support musicians for all of Canada. How is this a step forward? It's a step forward in the fact that uh, you're going to have some oversight. There's going to be obviously uh, like an advisory council that would be uh, controlling some of this. So you would get rid of some of the issues that have plagued the industry in the past, where you have um, people pretending to be Aboriginal, Indigenous uh, that aren't, so they can go decades sometimes without being um, uh, caught for uh, what they really are. So uh, it's have this level of oversight on Indigenous uh, music in particular, it's going to be really good. It's going to give uh, voices to the, the people that uh, they do represent. Um, so I think, uh, and creating something like this brings voices and people together. So it's very new. So I'd imagine that in the future, it's going to be a lot greater than even what they're saying the mandate is for it now. So I can only see positive benefits coming from this. Oliver has a rich cultural community. Can you share some of those names with us and, and what they contribute to your community? We have uh, artists of all kinds. We have um, uh, visual artists. We have um, uh, uh, singers, uh, dancers, uh, tattoo artists. So I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Rick Beaver first. I think uh, everyone's aware of Rick Beaver and his art. He's been doing it for decades. Uh, even when I was a small child, he was a renowned artist. Um, so he has gone through uh, several different styles over the years and all of them are great. I, I love where he's at right now. Uh, so he's been someone that we always look to for in the art world. Uh, we've had a few um, uh, deceased uh, artists who were just really fantastic in, in their trade. Um, and then in terms of, uh, uh, say, uh, musicals, uh, we have uh, Jordan Mowat, who is uh, a really good uh, young uh, singer in the traditional way. Uh, you see him at um, uh, all over the uh, the power circuit in Canada. We have uh, Kale Crow, who does a lot of uh, local live shows um, in Port Hope, Coburg, uh, around here. Um, also, uh, Corinne Smoke, who is a very talented um, uh, tattoo artist. She's got her own uh, um, studio here, and some of her work is amazing. She's also a painter, a visual artist. So if you go through uh, Alderville, you'll see a few of her murals around town. Um, and that's just a few. I don't want to leave anyone out, but we have, we, we have quite a lot of celebrated artists in Alderville. 
Well, that's a wrap up of our conversation about the impact of Indigenous people on the entertainment industry. Please stay tuned to hear more conversations towards reconciliation with Tanar Simpson. This is Northumberland 89.7 FM, your local source for news and information. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I hope you're enjoying our chat today. I'm Robert Washburn, and I'm here with Tanar Simpson, the chief of Alderville First Nations. We are so glad you're joining us. Tanar. Just before Christmas, the federal government announced a $6 billion investment in water infrastructure for Indigenous communities. It's aimed at creating national standards to protect drinking water. Plus, it establishes sovereignty rights over water and wastewater. While this has its supporters, there are also critics. Where do you stand on this announcement? Um, anything that comes from the federal government that's, uh, that claims to uh, solve all of our problems with uh, uh, money and uh, good words, I'm always skeptical about. Uh, if we look back at the Kelowna Accord that happened under uh, Paul Martin, he was promising for $3 billion to fix all the drinking water for Indigenous people in Canada. Uh, he lost the election and then nothing was ever talked about again. And then you just see how like the government will bail out uh, one industry company and goes, oh, here's $3 billion. And to think like in the past that would have, you know, apparently fixed all of our water issues. So it shows where the priorities are. Uh, we're here because of the the failings of the federal government on, on these water issues. So it's not like uh, we got ourselves here as ind Indigenous people and then the government's coming to save everything. This was something that was designed right from the get-go so that Indigenous people weren't going to be here. Um, they never invested in our water in the first place. They didn't want us to have good water. Uh, so it's uh, announcing something like this, it's uh, it's nice and everything, but uh, I really don't believe much until it actually happens. Uh, you have some communities that have had boiled water advisories for decades and nothing was done when they could have very well easily been done. So uh, announcement like this, um, I, I respond to with skepticism. You mentioned a number of things. Maybe there's a bit of background that listeners need to have. Why is it that uh, so many communities have bad water? How did this all start? Well, uh, for the most part, Indigenous communities were left on their own for their own water systems. Uh, so you have a lot of dug wells, artesian wells. Uh, some members are able to maybe afford a drilled well, but that's few and far between. And then there was never any support, whereas uh, um, for non-Indigenous people in Canada, you have various levels of municipal, provincial, federal funding to make sure you got the best uh, water. Your technicians are trained. You got big, expensive water treatment facilities. And that really was never done for Indigenous communities. And um, also, uh, industry was able to run rampant in our area. So we're often in areas where there's mines and forestry, and there's a lot of runoff of chemicals from these industries that uh, they had no problem running downstream to Indigenous communities. And we were just left to, to drink it and uh, uh, have horrible things, uh, horrible life uh, uh, expectancies and, and disease, cancer. So it's something that's uh, it's been long growing. It's always been an issue for Indigenous uh, people, even here in Alderville. Well, let's talk a bit more about that. Was Alderville impacted by boil water advisories in the past? Yes, uh, there were a number of years where we were under boiled water uh, advisories. Uh, we were part of the um, the boiled water advisory settlement um, that uh, that uh, all First Nations are able to do. So for those years that we were under the advisory, uh, our members who were living here on reserve are able to to claim compensation for that because of this lack of uh, um, you know, proper water treatment. Were there certain spots? Can you give us a little more detail? 
Well, um, since a lot of the water is uh, from well-based and the water itself is very poor quality. When I was a child growing up uh, in the city and whenever I came to Alderville, I would get uh, very sick when I drank the water. Um, I, a lot of my uh, uh, um, people here in Alderville now, they, they were able to drink it from a young age and not get sick. But someone coming from city water that's chlorinated and coming here, I would get terribly ill. So I always had to have uh, water boiled before I could drink it. So I kind of felt like, oh, that's not right. Um, and this was because of the wells. Uh, there's bacteria in the wells. Uh, the pumps are old. Uh, there's no proper uh, testing and regulation of poor quality, uh, poor water quality. So there was no uh, regimen to to identify poor water. So we were just always left on our own. And it's uh, only been I'm going to say it's actually continuing now that this same issue. And there's a lot of heavy iron and other elements in our drinking water, and we are not quite sure where that came from. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a pledge in the 2015 election to end boil water advisories for First Nations by 2021, and that did not happen. There are many statistics that show there are still communities under long-term advisories, I think 28 currently. Some of these have existed for more than 30 years. Why is this problem so hard to resolve? Um, I don't think it is hard to resolve. I think that there's just a lack of will on the government's part to do the right thing. Uh, this is something that money can fix uh, in an individual case like this. So um, just uh, they they did the number crunching and they're like, well, it's going to cost a lot of money to fix this water. So, you know, people aren't really clamoring to do it. It's not an election issue. They're not going to lose votes if they don't fix this. So it's something that's just allowed to go on as like, uh, you know, this is the way we've always done it and that's the way it always is. Uh, and we are always the, the the bottom of the barrel when it comes to services in the country anyway. So uh, <laughs> that's where that comes from. It's really interesting. Curve Lake played a critical role in getting this issue front and center back in 2019. Can you tell us a bit about how that happened and why it was so significant? Um, well, I think uh, it became a major issue uh, a lot uh, thanks to Curve Lake. Uh, but even here in Alderville, we um, we made our concerns uh, addressed and we actually got funding for a community water project where we were going to get our first water treatment facility. Uh, they were going to dig a couple of wells and it was going to become a source of community water. Uh, so we got the funding to do that. We're in the planning stages right now. And it's actually got to the point now where we are going to make two water treatment facilities. One where we're going to be building our new band office, uh, also by the health building and our uh, seniors complex. And another one by our new uh, subdivision where we're putting in a couple of uh, triplexes and there's already additional houses there. So this is going to be something that uh, if it's done properly, it's going to bring really good drinking water to the whole community. People can go there and fill up their water jugs as, as well. So it, this is a really big step. And we, we're, we're glad that the, uh, the government did decide to, to fund this project for us. What's the timeline on that project? Well, uh, this spring is when we're, we've actually started doing some of the test work, but this spring is when we're going to do all of the, the drilling and, and building of the, the, of the facilities. So uh, at a, I think by, you know, the fall, at least we should have uh, the plants up and running. How much is this going to cost? It was, uh, I think it was a couple of million dollars. Um, it's uh, just a drop in the bucket compared to what the federal government's uh, talking about, but uh, it was nice that this was funded because we ourselves don't have that money floating around that we can invest in something like this. So we have 
priorities. Uh, it's so many priorities. So you really have to be very careful if they're spending money. So this is something that we probably wouldn't have done um, just because of our limited funds. Now, in terms of the boil water advisories, I know there's a very important deadline coming up for people in Alderville. Can you share with us what's going on? Yes. So um, March 7th is the deadline for um, what's called the, uh, hang on, I just want to get the name right. Uh, okay. So it's basically the, the boil water advisory settlement uh, that the government announced. And the deadline was extended by uh, almost a year. Uh, I guess not enough people had been signed up for it, but we knew that so many people were affected. It's one of those things that really shouldn't have a deadline. Uh, but now the deadline is March 7th. And anyone who lived on in Alderville during the affected years uh, and their children will receive compensation, but they need to ensure that they, they get their deadline, uh, their application by the deadline of, of March 7th. So we are, we've already run a couple of um, sessions for our members to help fill the, out their uh, applications. And we are planning another one with our lawyer who is going to come in and, uh, uh, and show our members how to fill out the applications. And if they're not able to, she will um, actually fill the applications out for them. Uh, so, so this is good news for our members. And it's going to be something that uh, um, will help. Uh, members who already filled an application have already started to receive their um, uh, settlement in the mail. So March 7th, an important date. Get it done before then. We've talked about a lot of specific things. Are, what are some of the other things that are going on in the community over the next month? Uh, I think that the big one is, um, uh, I'm not sure if everyone knows, we have something called the Alderville-Williams Treaty uh, uh, Settlement Trust Agreement. So we have a trust set up to um, uh, hold the funds that we got from the, uh, the Williams Treaty Settlement. And half of it originally went out to the members and the other half was put into this trust. So every year we accept applications uh, from, from members for any ideas that they have, how they would like to see the trust funds spent. So we have a January 31st deadline of any member who's interested in uh, submitting a, a proposal for the use of these uh, trust funds. So what we do is um, we try to give around three to 4% of the, the entire amount out every year uh to to these projects so we've done a lot of things we've had a medical fund where members can um, uh, pay for things that aren't aren't paid for in other sources we have a recreation fund uh, where people can like get skates or sign up for health programs or uh, pilates or anything that they want to do um we also have a, a funeral benefits uh, fund um, to help out uh, when people need it the most so there's a lot of things that we were able to do that we always wanted to do, but weren't ever able to um, to get off the ground. So this is the time for the members to to put on the thinking caps and say, I've got a great idea to help out the members, uh, both on and off reserve. So um, we want to hear from the membership and see what they, they want to do. Anything else? Uh, I think for now, that's really good. We've got a few things on the go. We're going to be having... Um, uh, hopefully start a new farm coming up in the spring. Uh, this goes in line with our food sovereignty where we, we want to take control of our food sources. So uh, I want everyone to, you know, when the time comes, if they want to come out and help with uh, the new farm that we're setting up, then, then that would be great. We have some experts coming from uh, Trent University that are going to lead the way for us and, and share their expertise with us. And this is something that Curve Lake's been doing for a number of years, and it's been a big success. So we're hoping it's going to be a big success in Alderville. Have you got the lands already picked out or is that part of the process? 
Uh, we haven't picked out the exact lands, but the good thing about Alderville is we've been, um, we actually have quite a lot of farm fields, uh, some uh, active and some fallow that uh, we just have to pick which site we want. Uh, it will probably be based on the number of um, uh, uh, soil samples that we do. So a lot of these uh, were rented out to farmers and there's been a lot of pesticides and um, fertilizers put in that we wouldn't want to be using on for our farm. So we're going to get the, the ones with the best soil samples. There's a very rich history of Indigenous people and farming. Can you share a bit of, with us about what that's like and, and some of the things that are traditional uh, in your culture? Well, uh, so um, North American farming is uh, something that we, we've been doing for thousands of years. Uh, I think everyone's familiar with the Three Sisters. Uh, that's where you grow your corn, your beans, and your stock uh, squash together. And they live in a harmony. So uh, you have your beans that climb up the uh, the corn stalk, and then the squash leaves create a nice undergrowth to keep the weeds away. So they they they're stronger together. So each one alone wouldn't do as well uh, than with the three of them planted together. So uh, we're definitely going to have some uh, three sisters planted. We have some at the Black Oak Savanna, um, but there's a number of foods that uh, a lot of uh, Canadians might not know are actually from um, North America originally, like the tomatoes and. Uh, potatoes. Um, I know there's a whole whack of other ones too, but uh, a lot of the um, uh, the foods that uh, uh, Europeans would have had didn't exist uh, at that time in Europe. So uh, we've all brought our foods together. So anytime you have uh, um, you know sharing of food and food types, it's it's going to be better for for everyone. So uh, that's why people love going for all these different uh, various cuisines from around the world, and the more the merrier. Dinner Simpson, I want to thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure as always. I want to thank Alderville First Nations Chief Taynar Simpson for talking to me today. I want to thank you for joining our conversation, and I hope you enjoyed this time to learn more about what's going on, the stories and issues facing Indigenous people living in Northumberland and elsewhere. That's all for this week. I'm Robert Washburn. Join us again next time for Conversations Towards Reconciliation with Tanar Simpson.